0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good Wednesday, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. It's Fantasy NBA today, a sports ethos presentation. I am your host, Dan off offseason episode number one hundred and eight. Question mark? Pretty sure that's where we're at. We're going to finally do the show that uh, was voted for for Friday because, you know, I completely ignored all of you guys. And we're going to talk about the trade, the Donovan Mitchell trade, which I know. I mean, we're talking about almost a week ago that this thing went down, but still the offseason. There uh, remain a very, very small percentage of you guys that are doing drafts right now. We're still almost six weeks away from the start of the NBA season. So I didn't feel like there was a massive rush, and I was kind of not so secretly hoping that Utah would make another move in the, in the day or two following that trade. I knew it was somewhat unlikely, but I still had this fleeting hope, and now I'm just saying, screw it. We'll, we'll do a little bit of a breakdown here, and then if the Jazz shuffle the deck again, then we'll do a breakdown again. Simple enough. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, because that's my name, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Or just Google search Dan from Hoop Ball. That still remains, for whatever reason, the easiest way to find me, even though that site doesn't exist anymore. But I, I keep trying it out and it keeps it keeps working. Dan from Hoop Ball. If you just type in those words, you don't even the spelling doesn't even have to be great. There's my Twitter, right there at the top, and then for some reason, like a LinkedIn page that Every once in a while, someone LinkedIn's me, and I usually just say, okay, and then I immediately close the window down. But Twitter is actually important. If you want my fantasy insight throughout the entirety of the season, this podcast will be a lot of it. This is where we get to deep dive stuff, but Twitter is where we're going to do a lot of quick hitter things, nightly recap, stuff like that, uh, repeatedly, all season long. So please do uh, come along over there. Uh, What I want to do today on the podcast, I want to break down the Cleveland side, because I think that's kind of the easier of the two halves. And then we have a few things to discuss mid-show. Then we'll pivot over to the Utah side, which, again, I think we can all still agree is an unfinished product from a trade and build standpoint, but they do have a buttload of picks so far, and i will likely get a couple more before this thing's done. And we can at least kind of semi-plant our flag in a few things that I think we know to be true for the Jazz. By the way, you can check out Sports Ethos uh, at ethosfantasybk on Twitter or just go to sportsethos.com. So on the Cavaliers' side, they picked up Donovan Mitchell. That's kind of the only thing that's of, of any real import. Yes, we can concern ourselves with the players they traded out, Lowry Markkanen, Colin Sexton, uh the rookie, I think, blended in there as well, who everybody's fairly excited about, but you know my stance on rookies. I don't even learn their names until their second year in the NBA. Is he joking? Maybe a little. But let's, let's worry about this trade-off. Donovan Mitchell took almost 21 shots a game last year with Utah. And about five free throws, he also had five assists. So all of that rolls together. You don't even have to understand usage to understand that he was the centerpiece of the team's offense where he just left. Meanwhile, over on the Cavaliers' side, it wasn't this way the entire season, but certainly once basically all the other guards went down, Darius Garland became the sort of unchallenged centerpiece on the Cleveland side. Over the last 25 games of the year, Garland took about 20 shots, also had nine assists and six free throws over that stretch. His usage rate was actually even a tiny bit higher than Donovan Mitchell's. They were actually ranked pretty close over that stretch. Last uh, month and a half, two months roughly of the season, Garland was number 29, Donovan Mitchell was number 35. And their games weren't all that different, frankly. They shot the ball at about the same clip from the field, 43, 44 percent in that range. Both good foul shooters. Mid to high eighties on the Garland side, more like mid eighties for Donovan Mitchell. Garland had a couple extra assists. Mitchell had a few one and a half ish extra three pointers. Steals were pretty much the same. Neither guy got any blocks. Didn't neither guy really did any rebounds. But all of that is sort of I don't want to say irrelevant, but I mean it is relevant. But it's not the point the point is that anytime and i've already seeing it happen on twitter what am i already seeing happen i guess i'll explain that in a second anytime you add an ultra high usage player to another ultra high usage player someone will take a slight step back it's not always clear who it's going to be but it's always going to be someone and often it is someone's What am I already seeing happen on Twitter? I'm already seeing the mental gymnastics of folks saying, oh, well, there are enough possessions in the game to make sure that both of these guys have enough to do. And that's true to a degree. The degree that it's not true is that there aren't actually enough possessions for each of these guys to do the same thing that they did last year. It is true that they will each factor prominently in the Cavaliers' offense, but it is also true that they will not factor as prominently in their team's offense as they did individually on two separate teams last year. The most recent example of this is the Chicago Bulls. The Bulls added DeMar DeRozan and Lonzo Ball, but Lonzo less... Little, sort of a less relevant addition, to a team that already had Nikola Vucevic and Zach Levine. DeMar somehow continued his, this basically the same usage he had in San Antonio, in Toronto, all that, you know, straight line for him. But Zach Levine's and Vuce, both of those guys, had a usage rate drop. They did less. Levine's value went down, Vuce's value went down, he was able to float his with durability. It was DeMar DeRozan that sort of slipped through, continued to do all the same stuff he had, and other guys had to surrender some stuff to him. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Dan, that was a situation where three guys had to try to figure out how to share usage. And yes, that is unabashedly a tougher spot. But even two you do see a hit, particularly when it's two guys who are doing pretty similar stuff on the basketball court, one of whom is a slightly better passer. The other one you could probably argue is a little bit of a better scorer. But overall, like if Donovan Mitchell is not initiating the offense, sure, he might get his shots, but his assists wouldn't be the same. If Darius Garland isn't initiating the offense, yeah, maybe he gets the same shots, but his assists would take a hit. There's some erosion So then the question you kind of have to ask yourself is how much erosion is there when you stick two high usage guys who are in the same spot on the floor on the same team? And the answer to that is, and this is one of those spots where I love the answer because it falls right into the way we generally handicap things on this podcast. The answer is it doesn't matter. And you're like, what? Why the hell could how could Dan possibly say it doesn't matter? Surely it matters. Yeah, I mean, superficially it matters, but these guys have such powerful name value that they're probably going to go higher than whatever that erosion might be. And we haven't really seen this yet because Yahoo hasn't done their next player adjustment since the trade. Darius Garland is still pre-ranked 19. Donovan Mitchell is still pre-ranked 20. After Yahoo goes through and tweaks that stuff, and you probably see Garland come back down a little bit, and you probably see Donovan Mitchell come back down a little bit. First of all, Garland was at like 28 or 29 before this last adjustment, so his ADP was already a little bit later, and now it was it's kind of working its way forward. I don't know where that's exactly going to end up. Donovan Mitchell's ADP was right around 21-22. He's been pretty close to there. I think he moved forward one or two slots, but overall his numbers are pretty static. Whatever move we see from Yahoo, whenever it happens in the next week, week and a half, something like that, they'll do their next tweak. Then we'll see where those guys are. We'll know, you know, at, at that point, we'll know that their ADP is going to generally move in that direction. The only way that I could see it mattering how much erosion there is, is if Yahoo does their next update on like October 10th, and we don't get an opportunity for a subsequent update. See if you can stick with me on this, because this is, this is a spot on the show where things get a tiny bit dry, but I do need you to understand what I'm talking about here. It tends to take two pre-rank adjustments by a big box site for us to know where players are likely going to end up going. And we've now seen it with DeJounte Murray is a good example of this. He was pre-ranked very high on the first board, and then he was dropped really far on the second board after he got traded to Atlanta. He has since then uh, experienced a rebound effect, where now his pre-rank has bounced all the way back up to number 15, and I don't think it's going to go very far, actually, from there. I think we're pretty close to where Yahoo is likely to leave Murray. If they do tweak him a little bit in the next pre-rank adjustment, it'll probably be, I don't know, two, three slots down, something like that. Like, maybe he ends up behind Dame or behind Halliburton or Booker or something like that. So Murray, I think, is pretty close to where he's going to end up, but it did take a couple of boards for Yahoo to get him where they wanted him to be. I say this also because you might think Yahoo just does their ranks independent of what the world is saying. They don't. The Yahoo pre-rank board tends to reflect, to some degree, public sentiment on players. Not exactly, But to some degree. So then you get a guy like Murray who went too far down the board. They kind of realized it. Analysts were saying he needed to be a little bit sooner. And they brought him up the board probably a little bit too far. But following that sort of reflective situation. So we might see something similar to that here. Where Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland move down the board. I don't know how far. Call it 10-15 slots. Yahoo realizes perhaps they over-tweaked the numbers, and then they bring them back up a little bit. And at that point, you get pretty close to where they were going. And moreover, they were probably going a tiny bit too early anyway. The times where you need to stop and kind of think this strategy through a little bit more are times where you're dealing with, I say, stars that are a little bit more uh, low usage. Like the Rudy Gobert stuff is a more interesting... Nuanced situation than this one is. It's not that nuanced. Guys like Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland tend to get drafted a little early because they score a lot and for Garland assists a lot. And it's fine. Like they had very good fantasy seasons last year. That's not what this discussion is. People hear me say one thing and they extrapolate it to 15 others. It's just that guys like that tend to go a little bit too early. So you're already somewhat unlikely, at least if you're following the tenets of fantasy NBA today, the way that we, we we typically prepare ourselves for a fantasy draft, you're already somewhat unlikely to end up with those types of players early in a draft. But then, once you put them together, I think it's going to end up a lot like what you're seeing now with Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. And a lot like what we saw last year with Zach Levine, who tended to go too early. I know the DeMar thing, like, I don't know anybody that saw that type of forward surge coming. But that's just the way it goes. You put ultra-high usage guys together, and guys take hits. We say, oh, well, what about efficiency? Yeah, efficiency, you know, some... It would have to be a pretty marked improvement there. There, So, again, the discussion really is, yes, there are enough shots or possessions or whatever it is for both of those guys to have good fantasy seasons, but there probably aren't enough possessions for them to have the apex-level fantasy seasons that everybody wanted them to or where they were about to get drafted for. So, adjustment number one will be very interesting. How far down does Yahoo bring those two players? Adjustment number two will be even more interesting, provided that, again, does happen before your draft. If it doesn't, say, if you're drafting right now, those guys are going to go way too early because somebody in your league is going to do it, and they're going to say, oh, they'll be fine, and they're going to take them way too early. Or maybe you draft them after this next adjustment where perhaps they get adjusted down the board too far, and then maybe those are guys that we end up targeting a little bit, but that uh, seems somewhat unlikely. We just need to have our head on a swivel with this stuff. But again, understanding that you don't really need to know how much erosion there is to understand that any is probably too much. That's how you simplify fantasy basketball. Sure, you could get in there with the with the exacto and, and cut out the perfect amount of erosion for these guys. Okay, well, if he falls to pick whatever, that's where I would take him. Okay, that's fine. I am the the world's largest fantasy proponent of working smarter not harder. Do you want to spend 3 or 4 hours trying to figure out exactly where Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland need to be going while Yahoo is still moving them around and ADP's are still shifting? It's like it's almost impossible because it becomes a moving target. Every day you draft they could go in a different spot, and all your work just gets blown up. So don't spend all this time trying to figure out that exact moment, oh, this is a guy that we could get if he gets to this spot, when you don't even really know where they're going to be going yet. And I would apply a little bit of this on the other side as well of this trade, because Utah still has a number of veterans. Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, Jordan Clarkson being sort of the three names that we keep hearing in trade rumors. I saw some articles rolling around on the internet about how the Bucks maybe could take a run at Jordan Clarkson, get a little bench scoring punch. So there are teams, everybody keeps saying the Lakers. Lakers to me only make sense for Bogdanovich because he's an expiring deal. And honestly, if the Lakers don't make an Indiana trade, well, they're crazy. Like if you're going to take on a, a player that has more than one year on their contract, it's got to be the one that makes you a true competitor, no one on Utah makes the Lakers a competitor the way that Miles Turner actually can dramatically impact what that team is doing. But that's a discussion for another podcast, or frankly, maybe a show that's not a fantasy show. Well, we're looking at the Utah side, they brought in all these young guys. The ones you need to keep an eye on are guys like Walker Kessler, Jared Vanderbilt, if he's still there, Larry Markkanen, Colin Sexton, and Taylor Horton Tucker. I think you could probably even throw Malik Beasley on that discussion. When I say this, and as I'm saying it, you should have the same reaction to all those names that I am trying to convey in how I list them, which is, crap, that's still a lot of names. Yeah, it very much is. Right now... Utah is in a gross little in-between spot. They've traded away both of their superstars, but they still have a couple of veterans left, so they would accidentally win a handful of games. And you know they don't want to do that. So if you're contemplating drafting a Utah veteran, the short answer is probably don't. The slightly less short answer is you could give an outside glance at Conley only because historically he's been someone that's you know been able to get fantasy value into the positive impact zone. He was over sixty nine per game in nine cat last year, so that was pretty good. Which kind of tells you, like, look, even if he just plays a handful of games before shutdown type stuff, that could be interesting. I wouldn't touch Conley in head to head. I'm not touching Boyan Bogdanovich in any format. Because where he gets traded, his role will be smaller. Same story for Jordan Clarkson. Same... Eh, not necessarily the same story for Conley. Like, he could go someplace and get 11 shots. Let's say he does end up on the Lakers somehow. He could pretty much do on the Lakers what he did in Utah last year. 11 shots, 5 assists. That's repeatable. There's no upside with these guys. But they are going to get drafted crazy low. So at least you have to think about it. But Bodanovich, there's really and Clarkson, honestly, there's almost no point at which they could be low enough for me to look at it. Because they're not gonna play in that many games for Utah. Right now, there's this moment where it's like, oh well, if they're playing, they get to do all this stuff. But that's a, a total crapshoot. Here here's let me let me add one little corollary to this. If you get to like the second to last round of your draft and the Utah veterans are still on the board, you could take them with the express purpose of just putting them on your bench for the first game of the season to see if the Jazz are even going to play them. Because at that point in a fantasy draft, you're in the dregs. And at least, like, let's say Utah still has one or two of their vets on the roster on opening night. They might just roll them out there for 27, 28 minutes a game, and said veteran, like if it was Conley, maybe he just decides to take 14, 15 shots in that one game. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to play you tonight, and then you're going to rest like two days, and then we'll play you again. That's actually useful in Roto Games cap. Same story for someone like a Bogdanovich. Oh, yeah, we're going to play you this game, then we're going to skip two, but hey, go ahead and take like 16 shots while you're out there. So that's the scenario where you could consider some of these Utah veterans. And it might actually come up. I don't want to make it a total throwaway type of situation. Those guys could still be on your draft board in the last round, and those guys could still be on Utah when you have your fantasy draft. It is not at all out of the realm of possibility. So once again, just to repeat, just cuz I know we're sort of we we sort of circle the the we're not really at the target all the time on this show. We're sort of just wandering around it, seeing all the turning over all the stones near where we're actually trying to walk to. Mike Conley, Boyan Bugdonovic, Jordan Clarkson. If they are still on the Utah Jazz when you have your fantasy draft, keep an eye on them as a last or second-to-last round grab. This is Roto Games Cap format, because you might be able to squeeze some big games out of them at the beginning of the year before they either get traded or shut down. Do not use up a pick on them where there's a guy out there that you think has full season fantasy appeal. But the last few picks in your draft are guys, you're probably going to be turning into streaming slots anyway, grabbing dudes off the waiver wire, seeing if they might stick. You might as well just kind of consider these guys that effort, but on draft night. Before I talk about the young guys on the Utah side, I want to remind all of you that the Sports Ethos draft guide is out. Yeah! The Sports Ethos Draft Guide is out, and it is in the Fantasy Pass. It's available by itself. Draft Guide you can get a la carte. That's not my favorite way to do it, though. Or you can get it in the Fantasy Pass or in the 360, Ethos 360 uh, subscription. Those are actually the ones that I would recommend. For those of you that just do full-season fantasy basketball, the Fantasy Pass is the way to go. It's six months at five ninety nine dollars a month. So it comes out to just under $36, all told, in half a year. That gives you everything in the draft guide. It gives you Brewski 150 access five days before draft guide a la carte buyers. And it gets you all the in-season fantasy stuff throughout the regular year, or as long as the subscription is turned on, I guess we should say. So at least six months of it, and if you want it longer, you can keep it longer. In-season stuff, which is, of course, projections, Q&A sessions with the pros, tools and as of yesterday the draft guide and fantasy pass got a few new things added to it the streaming tool which is one of my favorite things i actually created it a few years ago it's a very easy to read grid of when all the teams in the nba are playing over the course of an entire season and so you can and we talk about this so much during the fantasy playoffs but you can do it during the regular fantasy season as well it's about maximizing your weekly moves so you can grade it out. Hey, what team has five games and seven nights? There's also the schedule grid, and I want to talk about those together as two things that just got put into the, the premium package, but also how useful they are. The schedule grid tells you how many games teams have in any given week. That's all great, and a lot of articles get written on Sundays, because weekly leagues, for the teams that have four or if there's a five-game type of week. But the beauty of the streaming tool You can find five-game weeks that just don't begin and end on Monday, Sunday. Does that make sense? Like, with the streaming tool, and again, we'll talk about this a lot during the fantasy playoffs, not as much during the fantasy regular season. The streaming tool is where you can find teams that go four times in six days, five times in seven days, three times in four days, and they're sort of off the main days of week start. Oh, here's a bunch of teams that play Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday's week. This is a team that goes Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Okay, cool. So you can use your moves at the right time during the week to make sure you're adding games to your weekly total, and then sometimes guys will roll into the following week. You don't have to recycle them on Monday the way that traditional schedule grids do. We also added, shout-out to Andre for this one, the ADP tracker, this brand-new tool for Fantasy Pass users and draft guide buyers. And this is a really cool one because, you know, on this show we talk about how guys' ADPs move around. This tracks ADP. So if someone's on the rise, you can see it. If they're on the fall, you can see it. That helps you grid out where they're likely going to go in a draft based on what direction their ADP is moving. Because sometimes that ADP data is lagging a little bit. Go to sportsethos.com, click on the Premium tab, and you can see all the goodies. That are available. You can get the draft guide a la carte. You can get the Brewski 150 a la carte. It's not out yet, by the way. But I would still recommend the Fantasy Pass. Because it's got all that stuff and the in-season membership. Go check that out right now. That's how we power the locomotive here. Over at Sports Ethos. And you're a big part of that. So, uh, shout out to everybody that's gotten involved on that front. Oh, by the way. um, I guess football starts tomorrow. Football is also in the Fantasy Pass. This year. So, for a limited time. You get NFL fantasy package included in the traditional fantasy pass. Next year, those uh, NBA and NFL fantasy passes will probably split apart and you will have to choose one, the other or both this year. You don't. All right. SportsEthos.com. Again, if you follow me on Twitter at Dan Vespers, we can deal with it over there. Uh, oh, we sent out a mass email about sports ethos, listener leagues yesterday. A bunch of you guys signed up. You're going to be up on Twitter about those as well, or email roster at SportsEthos.com about any of this stuff that we're talking about. We're also recruiting. I'll be doing more of that on social media, so uh, make sure to check it out over there. Okay, what about the young guys on Utah now? And I'm lumping basically anybody that came back to them in these trades as young guy. I kind of have to like put it in quotes for it to make sense. Uh, but the list so far of younger dudes and Pat Beverly going out for Stanley Johnson at THT has already kind of been reflected in this. Taylor Norton-Tucker, Malik Beasley, Stanley Johnson, uh, who am I forgetting? Walker Kessler, Jared Vanderbilt, Larry Markkanen, Colin Sexton, and and there's multiple other names in there as well. I want to try to focus our discussion on the guys that seem to be in the plans for Utah. Because that's what this type of moment on the fantasy side, is all about. I should probably explain what I mean by that particular phrasing. Who are the Jazz committed to from this rebuild? Some rebuilds, teams acquire players and picks together, but only intend on using the picks. Oklahoma City is a really good example of that. They pretty much had no intention of utilizing any of the players they got back in any of the trades they made, except for Shea Gilgis-Alexander. There was one. That's basically it. Everything else was about what picks they could get, how to get into the rebuild that way. With Utah, it's not quite the same. Because they just signed Colin Sexton to a four-year extension, which they didn't have to do. And Lowry Markkinen had just signed a multi-year deal with Cleveland before they acquired him. Walker Kessler was a first-round pick. Ochai Abaji, first-round pick. Malik Beasley? Uh-huh. Stanley Johnson? No. Andrew Bomaro, No. Jared Vanderbilt? Maybe. THT? Maybe. What's clear, I think... When everything is, I think. What's clear-ish is that they're committed to Colin Sexton for a while. Larry Markkinen, they're committed to for a little while. Walker Kessler and Abadji are guys that they brought in as first-rounders that are likely going to get a shot. And then everybody else is kind of a maybe. Like, there's no guarantee that Taylor Horton Tucker is going to play a truckload of minutes on this team. What does this mean for fantasy drafts? Well, already, and this is where you have to sort of look at what people are saying. Already, I'm watching analyst drafts where Colin Sexton is going in the sixth round. And I want to caution folks because I think maybe we've forgotten what Colin Sexton was before he got hurt, which is a guy who pretty much only scored. Yes, he kind of goes back to a lead seat, which he was basically going to be giving up in Cleveland. But two years back, Sexton took almost 19 shots a game, Average 24 points, three boards, four and a half assists, a little over a steal. 47 and a half shooting from the field, 81 and a half at the free throw line. A lot of that actually sounds pretty good, but not a ton of threes. Again, the defensive stats were kind of low. Turnovers were a little bit on the high side. His fantasy game, even if he's technically probably going to be the point guard on this club, his fantasy game actually mirrors shooting guards more than point guards. Not high assists, a lot of scoring, not a ton of defensive stats. Percentages are, eh, like not decent. They're decent. Doesn't really hurt you there the way that some shooting guard minds, But the trade-off there there is that he's not hitting many three-pointers. This was already Colin Sexton at pretty damn high usage. And I get it. If you think he's going to get 22 shots a game out there, then fine. You go higher than this. But he was number 99 per game that year with between 18 and 19 shots per ball game. What does he do? Well, he scores. What does that typically do to somebody's fantasy outlook? They get drafted early when they score a ton. Funny thing is I'd probably rather look at someone like Larry Markinen in this whole ordeal because last year he played 31 minutes a game on a team where he wasn't getting all that much usage And he put up top 70 range. He was number 71, by the way, at the very end of the year. Value. He got some games in there where guys were hurt, like when Jared Allen was out, that was useful for him. Mobley didn't miss that many games, but when Mobley was out, that was better for Markin, and he missed 21 games himself. Lori lost a ton of rebounds because he was playing a, a heavy dose of small forward on that gigantic Cavs front court. If he slots back into a power forward spot in Utah, which I would assume he's going to see some time there, because they've gotten rid of all of their centers. Meaning, Walker Kessler is going to see center time. Vanderbilt will see center time. Markkinen probably sees some center time, and if he doesn't, that means he sees a whole bunch of time at power forward. I look, I like. We're not going to get too crazy here, because this is not like a oh we got to race out and get Laurie Markkinen kind of thing. But if you look back and at his time in Chicago pre trade, Markkinen was actually a much better rebounder per minute than what it seemed like this last season in Cleveland. In fact, Markinen was actually a pretty interesting fantasy player right out of the chute in Chicago, but Jim Boylan kind of broke him. Markin was hurt a lot during his sophomore year in the NBA, but he averaged 19 points and 9 rebounds in 32 minutes a game. Last year he was at 15 points and almost 6 rebounds in 31 minutes a game. You take Jared Allen and Evan Mobley out of the equation and you put him alongside, well, Jerry Vanderbilt's a very good rebounder, but we don't know if he's going to even be there when things start. Walker Kessler we know almost nothing about as far as the NBA is concerned. His rebounding numbers are going to go up. He's in a better spot in Utah to grab boards. I would argue he's probably in a better spot in Utah to get shots, assuming that Bogdanovich gets moved because he's also kind of in the way at power forward. So of all this nonsense going on in Utah, the guy that I think has a chance to be interesting is Larry Markinen. What we don't know is where he's going to get drafted. Because his pre-rank was 122 in Cleveland, which, by the way, already made him a pretty good deal out there. Now in Utah, he's going to go earlier than that. But how early is Yahoo going to move him? Are they going to overshift him and screw everything up? And then do they bring him back down the board a little bit and make him interesting again? I've actually gotten the question on what to do with someone like Walker Kessler, someone like Jared Vanderbilt. My answer is it's kind of hard to know right now. We don't know exactly how many minutes either of those guys is going to get. We don't know if they're going to play them together. We don't know uh, if Vanderbilt might get traded before the season starts. We know he's also on the block, even though he's, he's relatively young as well. But among them... Kessler is worth a flyer at the end of your draft, for sure. Put up huge block numbers in college. And if he gets, you know, mid-20s minutes at the center spot. This is what we talk about with rookies. I have a soft spot for rookie bigs, and he would fall into that. It's just kind of hard to know how much they actually want to utilize him, or if he was just a way for Utah to get sort of a low-risk, high-probability upside dude. First rounder in a trade. But he put up big block numbers. Blocked four and a half shots a game last year in 25 and a half minutes. And he's not as spindly as uh, Chet Holmgren. Kessler's 7 1, about 250. He shot one and a half three pointers a game. It didn't go all that great for him, but he also showed a little bit more range. So, yeah, I mean, worth a shot because there aren't any other centers on the table there. I also kind of want to see where he ends up going. I don't know if I've seen him drafted in any of my mocks so far, uh, which are just standard Yahoo mocks. I'm sure the analyst mocks, he goes off the board a little bit. Uh, but he's someone definitely considered towards the end of the draft. And if Vanderbilt remains, he's also someone to consider because as you sort of round this roster out, right now Bogdanovich is still there, but if he gets moved and no power forwards or big men float in, you're talking about Markinen, Vanderbilt, and Kessler basically splitting all the big man minutes. We will talk more, fear not, about exactly where these guys should be going as we run closer to your actual draft day. But that's where we sit right now. Keep an eye on Utah. More stuff coming a few days late better than not at all i'm dan baspris this is fantasy nba today your wednesday edition off season episode 108 hey go get a fantasy pass or a draft guide at sportsethos.com do again follow me on twitter so we can talk over there if you got questions you can hit me up there or email roster at sportsethos.com hey if you're enjoying some of these run-up to the season shows i'm you in a while throw a five-star review on it then i'll love you forever that's how easy it is with me oh yeah i'm easy Okay, I guess that's it. Nothing else. I thought maybe something would come to me there, but screw it. On to Thursday. We'll talk to you tomorrow, everybody.